As was mentioned previously, what a joyous opportunity and a delight that we have this morning to come together and offer the praise and the glory into the name of God that he so richly deserves. For it still is the case, isn't it, that God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about him. Psalm 89, verse 7. This morning, as we've already noted, certainly our regular membership, some are able to be back with us after some illness, and for that we're very thankful and grateful. And on other instances, there we have a number of visitors with us, and certainly for your presence, we also feel to be honored today. And we hope that if you have questions about the congregation here, that you'll certainly seek one of our elders, make sure to get one of the bulletins, and ask those questions that may in fact occur, occur to your mind to, to ask. We have for a number of Sundays been involved in a series of lessons that in fact consider the end of time. What will take place? What will be the sequencing of the events? What does the Holy Word of God inform us that will occur as the end of time comes upon us? And as all of those questions have enveloped our mind and surrounded our thinking, we have in fact been reminded of the way in which the world so often looks at with great interest the matters about the end of time. It seems that every book that someone seems to write rockets to the top of the New York Times bestseller list as it speculates about the things that will occur, the events that will transpire, and what it shall be like. We learned early on in this series that our interest is not what men may speculate about those events, but rather, what does the Word of God reveal about that, because that is the truth upon that subject. And this today, we already have come to this particular lesson, which is the sixth one in this installment. In fact, there at the outset, I've listed at least in very brief fashion some of what we have learned already to this point. We've been reminded how that the world, in many instances, has accepted what men have said, and for that reason, remain relatively ignorant of what the Bible says about the end of time. Despite the fact there's great interest and also great curiosity, unfortunately, quite often it is not met with searching the Scriptures to find the truth of God. For it is true that the authority that we need of this subject as well as all others comes from the Word of God. In the second lesson, we gave some consideration to what men have so often said about the end of time. And it goes by that long name premillennialism. And that's the name of the series that we have made use of in terms of its description. In the next lesson, lesson three, we looked at the purpose of the Lord's coming to this earth. Why did he come? Was it to establish an earthly kingdom? Was it to, in fact, present some physical response to the natures of the human family? And the answer was no. Four reasons the Scriptures give us, and all of them for the reason he came, pointed to the spiritual character of our sin, and he is coming to die on the cross that we could be saved from it. In the fourth lesson, we gave thought about the Jewish rejection of Jesus. Was it a surprise? We learned that it wasn't, despite the fact premillennialism says it was. Last week, we gave some consideration to the kingdom prophecies. Those prophecies that are found within the pages, mostly of the Old Testament, we asked the question, to what kind of kingdom did they refer was it a physical, earthly kingdom over which, say, Jesus will reign in Jerusalem? We learned absolutely not. All the characteristics pointed rather to a kingdom that would have spirituality in its thrust. Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world in John 18.36. Today, as we come to the sixth installment in the series, you may have noted a moment ago in the title, and it's restated again near the bottom. 
What about the rapture? R-A-P-T-U-R-E. What about the rapture? It may well be that few of the matters of premillennialism gain the attention that this one does. It seems to rest so easily and so smoothly upon the minds of people. In fact, what about the following set of quotes? Allow me to quote if I might. His appearance in the clouds shall be veiled to the human eye and no one will see him. He will slip in, slip out, move in to get his jewels and slip out as under the cover of night. That's from a book entitled How to Be Personally Prepared for the Second Coming of Christ, page 34, written by Oral Roberts. How about another quote? I was driving down the freeway and all of a sudden the place went crazy. Cars going in all directions and not one of them had a driver. I mean, it was wild. That from Hal Lindsey in a book entitled The Great, the Late Great Planet Earth, page 125. Do you sense the idea? Maybe you've encountered it yourself in various ways, be it articles or perhaps the things that are on the magazine rack as you check out at the grocery store. We are told by premillennial ideas that there's coming an occasion when the Lord returns, He's going to slip in secretly and quietly and take away those who are His own, the saints, if you please, leaving behind, of course, those that aren't. And for those who will be left behind, it'll be much like what Mr. Lindsay has said, or at least that's what we're told. Cars suddenly won't have drivers. Airplanes won't have pilots. Those that were saints and those that are ready will just be whisked away secretly. Our chore today will be to turn the attention to the Word of God and to approach some things perhaps that I've tried to highlight like this. Primarily asking, is it true that things are going to happen the way in regard to a rapture that I have just read? Is Mr. Oral Roberts correct? Is Mr. Hal Lindsay correct? And are a number of others correct in their assertions? I thought it would be time well spent to spend just a moment or two and to review what premillennialism says about the rapture so that from this point on in the lesson we can focus on what the scriptures say. But here is what premillennialism says. Premillennialism affirms that there are various signs as revealed in the Bible that tell about when the Lord is going to come. These signs are thus things that individuals can use to prepare themselves and others. And yet, when the particular event of the Lord's second coming does occur, it supposedly will happen in what is called a rapture. You'll notice I've tried to define for you specifically what they mean by that. The rapture is basically this. It is the sudden, secret coming of Christ in the air to catch away from the earth, the living saints, and the resurrected bodies of the faithful dead. So to describe that in other ways, you and I are told that he's going to secretly come back and he'll be in the air, but he's just going to whisk away those that are his faithful, the ones that are alive, as well as those faithful ones who have died. They will be resurrected. And though living as well as the resurrected dead will just disappear. They'll be taken away by Jesus and they're going to live with him for a little while. That's what we're told. I keep emphasizing that's what we're told. Our question is going to be, does that correspond to what the Bible teaches? 
Because let's look a little further. Supposedly, they will be taken away for a period of seven years. And during that time, which will be called the tribulation period, next Lord's Day morning, we will turn our attention to that in some detail. But you might appreciate already now that obviously if the saints have so-called been raptured away, those left behind will be the wicked. Those not ready for His coming. Those who have not submitted and bowed the knee, if you please, to Jesus. The ones left behind, the rebels to His cause. And finally, we notice the sensational character of how various men are able to paint a rather sensational picture about this like how Lindsay did and like Oral Roberts, about how things are going to be just disappearing for various people. And with all of that said, now the question, is the rapture taught in the Bible? Do the Scriptures of God present to us a scenario that harmonizes with what we've just described? May I submit to you over the next several moments this morning, let us see. And let us use our scriptures and turn to various places in the Bible and let God identify the matters concerning the second coming. And let's see if they correspond to what you and I have just been told. Perhaps nextly, we should affirm one interesting point. And it's a point that is certainly of great significance. Jesus' second coming is taught in the Bible. And thus, in every reference and in all ways in which it is said that the Lord will come back, that much at least is correct. For it certainly is true, pronounced and declared in so many places and ways in the New Testament, that in fact Jesus is coming back. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That's a quotation from John 14, verses 1 to 3. On the very night prior to his crucifixion, Jesus, in fact, in an attempt to comfort and provide a bit of solace to those troubled apostles that were there in his hearing, announced to them the fact, you believe in me now. I'm going to go away, but I will come back. And where I am, there you may be also affirming the character of what will transpire when he comes back. It is to be noted, then, isn't it, that even Jesus promised the nature of a return. As you give some thought to other passages that touch that same subject, in Acts 1, beginning in verse number 9, we have that rather vivid scene in which Jesus, on that occasion, was ascended to the Father. The days following his resurrection had been complete. He had given instruction in a variety of ways to his apostles. And now shortly they were to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. But in Acts 1 verses 9 through 11, it says that in the very presence of them, the Lord ascended from this earth, passed through the clouds, and went back to heaven. But what's interesting for us about that, at least at this point in our lesson, is what were those two angelic visitors proclaiming in verse 11? As they appeared, in fact, to the apostles who were gazing upward into heaven, did not they say, Ye men of Galilee, why stand ye gazing up into heaven? This same Jesus whom you have seen go into heaven shall so come in like manner as ye have seen him go into heaven. Here were thus angelic visitors also promising that in the same way you've seen him ascend, he is going to return. Those are two rather encompassing passages, aren't they? 
And what's more, we notice there in some sense only a sampling of many others that could be listed. For instance, in regard to the Thessalonian brethren, in 1 Thessalonians 1 verse 10, in the very last verse of that opening chapter of the 1 Thessalonian letter, Paul in writing to these individuals who, by the way, were troubled relative to the second coming, they had been greatly agitated by what others had said relative to the second coming of Christ. And to them, notice what Paul said, you should wait for the second coming or wait for the coming of the Son of God. Thus Paul asserted that there is a period of waiting. He had no question or doubt as to the fact the Lord would return. He informed the Thessalonians that they in fact should wait for that event. How often in the letters of First and Second Timothy and Titus does Paul make mention of the second coming? I've only given you a brief summary of some of them. In 2 Timothy 1 verse 10, Paul made explicit reference to the appearing of Jesus the Lord. He wasn't talking about his past appearance. The clear reference is to the fact that he's coming yet again. But in addition to that passage of 2 Timothy 1.10, there's 1 Timothy 6.14, where again the word, same word, appearing also occurs. I would suggest that in all of them, we might give some interesting reflection as to what that significance is. The appearing. Thus, when something appears, you and I have access to see it, to observe it, to witness it. And yet, that was one of Paul's favorite words relative to the second coming of Christ. We might already begin to ask, does it sound as if it will be secret and sudden and few will see him? Given the fact that Paul uses the word appearing, as we keep that in mind, we'll revisit that particular thought later in the lesson as well. But perhaps for now, what if we look at the very last chapter in all the New Testament? In Revelation 22, we notice the last two to three verses of that chapter. There, Jesus, who was the speaker in the Revelation, he was the one, it is the revelation of Jesus Christ, Revelation 1 verse 1. And yet in the very last couple of verses of the book, Jesus said, I come quickly. I come quickly. Notice he didn't say, I came. He said, I come. He is referring to an event and a time yet future when he would come quickly. Might we note then, as we have at least looked at the opening part of our lesson, that the Lord's second coming is a sure thing. It will occur. It may certainly be long after you and I have passed from the earthly scenes of this life. We may have in fact already died, but that doesn't change the fact that he will return. Near the bottom of the screen, one more thought we should emphasize. What is said in the New Testament about that coming? It is said that it will be sudden. That is to say, in a very unexpected fashion. If we revisit Luke 24 for a moment, this particular chapter is one which again raises itself in many discussions of the second coming. And you and I will give great detail to it in a later lesson of the series. However, verses 42 to 46 are abundantly plain. And as Jesus speaks, listen to what he said. Watch ye therefore, for ye know not what hour your Lord doth come. But know this, that if the good men of the house had known in what watch the thief would come, he would have watched and would not have suffered his house to be broken up. Therefore be ye also ready, for in such an hour as ye think not, 
the Son of Man cometh. Who then is a faithful and wise servant whom, whom his Lord hath made ruler over his household to give meat in due season? Blessed is that servant whom his Lord when he cometh shall find so doing. Jesus even affirmed, didn't he, that with regard to the second coming, he is appearing that it will be likened unto a thief coming. It will be a very sudden event. You'll notice in the very next chapter, he goes on to say in verse 13, Watch therefore, for ye know neither the day nor the hour wherein the Son of Man cometh. Again, Jesus was not referring back to some previous coming. He said, referring to cometh, that which is yet to occur, that no man knows the day nor the hour of it. It will be a sudden, unexpected appearing, will it not? And furthermore, in light of those matters, might we ask this question. Given that both Jesus and Paul, the inspired apostle, make reference to his second coming likened unto a thief, might we ask, do thieves call ahead and give notice that they're coming? Do thieves inform one that they are soon to occur, I'll be at your house at 11 o'clock Friday night? I think not. The last thing that a thief does is to give warning of his arrival. For he well understands that one would be prepared with perhaps law enforcement officers or even otherwise. And yet Jesus, as well as Paul, in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 2 said, His coming will be like a thief in the night. In fairness then, we certainly have learned that the Lord will come and that He will come suddenly. And thus the Lord's injunction, His warning was to be ready, ever ready, always prepared for you don't know the day nor the hour when He may appear. With those thoughts in mind, let's now highlight those passages and some others as they relate to what we were told in the rapture idea earlier today. Remember, you and I were told that the Lord's coming is supposed to be a secret thing. He'll appear, he'll again whisk the saints away. No one's going to know he's here except those who have been whisked away. The rest of us, supposedly, are just going to see cars without drivers, airplanes without pilots. We're going to see particular other things where people we've known are just not here anymore. We're going to wonder where they went. However, is that the kind of description that you and I read earlier and that was read in our hearing earlier today by Adam from 1 Thessalonians 4? I'd call specific attention to you to verse number 16, if I may. For the Lord himself shall descend with, a, with the voice of the archangel and with the trump of God. Does it sound as if that's going to be a quiet event? The voice of the archangel, the trump of God. And furthermore, can we notice that a shout is even mentioned? Three things informing us that this event, among many other things that it might be, one thing it will not be is quiet and secretive. As if we needed additional consideration in Revelation 1 verse 7, the inspired apostle John, in writing what the Lord delivered to him, said, Every eye shall see him, even those that pierced him. And the earth shall be filled with great mourning and wailing. John, how many eyes will see him? He didn't say many or even most. He said, Every eye shall see him. Friends, one of the things we can recognize quickly, isn't it, that this event that is so-called as the rapture, in which the Lord is supposed to appear rather quietly and secretly and whisk away a few saints that are ready for Him, is a rather far picture from what the Scriptures have described 
every eye shall see him. And he will appear in 1 Thessalonians 4.16 with the voice of the archangel, with a trump of God, and with a shout. One doesn't use a trump to hold it silently by one side. A trump is used to, in fact, present a call, a recognized matter which can be understood in the hearing of others. And as we can see, this description of 1 Thessalonians 4 is a rather encompassing one, isn't it? As one contemplates the nature of what that coming will be like, one of the things that seems apparent already is that it stands opposed to what premillennialism has taught us, or at least what premillennialism has asserted. So far, we find no evidence at all for the rapture as it's presented by men. We've learned the Lord will come and that he'll come secretly. But as far as, or suddenly I mean, but as far as a secret appearance where few, if very few will know it, that certainly is not taught in the Word of God, is it? However, one in fairness should make note of some of these thoughts that I have put in the next section of our lesson this morning. Because as others who have read this and given some thought to it, notice that they make a great deal about various Greek terms and Greek words that are used in these passages and in these descriptions of the Lord's second coming. Today we will be able to address these rather quickly and also rather thoroughly because I would in fact point out this to you. There are two different Greek words that appear in various places relative to the second coming of Christ. And I've listed them in italic type, at least in terms of the English rendition of the word. One is the word parousia. And you'll notice that word simply means coming. C-O-M-I-N-G. And it appears in some of those passages that are very familiar to you and to me. For example, in 1 Thessalonians 4, verse 15, the very passage that you and I read earlier, Let's reread that and notice verse 15 where Paul says, For this we say unto you by the word of the Lord, that we which are alive and remain unto the coming, that word coming is the word parousia, of the Lord shall not prevent them which are asleep. So notice may that there is a particular word that's employed. And by the way, it's also used in passages such as 2 Peter 1 verse 16 where there the Apostle Peter used this word parousia to make reference to the second coming of our Savior. That thought in mind, though, you'll notice you had a different word, the word epiphany, and it means appearing. Or shall we say, it means a shining forth. And there are also some passages, again, rather familiar to us, in which that word also appears, in fact, in 2 Timothy 4, verse 8. One of those famous passages, as Paul neared the end of his life, didn't he say, I fought a good fight. I finished my course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but unto all of them also that love his appearing. That word appearing is the word epiphany. And thus, there are some who will say, well, notice that there are different words used here. Maybe one of them is referring to his coming in a rapture event, and maybe the other one is referring to his coming at the end of that rapture event, right before the thousand-year reign. That's the perspective that, in fact, some are excited to tell us. In Titus 2, verse 13, we find that word appearing, the word epiphany used again. 
Isn't it the case there that we remember that Jesus is said on that occasion to appear and how we should be so excited as we think about the reality of that event. But in both of those instances, might I bring one interesting point for your learning and for mine. Both of these words refer to the same coming, just different aspects of it. And you might ask, how do we know that? Or in what way can we be sure of that? Perhaps the bottom set of text will help us appreciate that fact. There are places in the New Testament in which both words are used in the same context and thus clearly refer to the same thing. One of them clearly is 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. In that passage we find both words occurring in the same verse. Parousia, epiphany, and clearly they are both there referring to the same event. Thus, we are not in a position to rely upon the difference in these Greek words as meaning separate comings. They refer to different aspects of the same coming. Will he come as in a parousia? Absolutely. He said, didn't he, in John 14, I prepare a place for you. I will come again. However, when he comes, will it be a shining forth? Will it be an appearance in the sense every eye shall see him? Absolutely. He said it himself in Revelation 1-7. And thus, as we give thought about the nature of those two words, they help us appreciate even more the glorification of that event. How truly remarkable it will be when he does return. Because after all, can we not see in one final set of thoughts this morning some specific considerations relative to the rapture as premillennialism teaches it and relative to the Word of God as God teaches it. In fact, can we reason as follows? If the premillennialism set of ideas is true, does that lead to some contradictions to some well-appreciated passages of the New Testament? Over the next few moments, let us turn our attention and see if those ideas, in fact, are not found to be the case. Think of it like this. If the rapture idea is true, if then the faithful are whisked away and that leaves behind only the unfaithful, doesn't that suggest that there is then a separation of the faithful and the unfaithful? That is to say, a separation of the righteous and the wicked on the occasion of the rapture. That may, this means that separation will persist for those seven years, and it's not until seven years later when the Lord comes again that in fact He will come back with the saints. And then another thousand years, we're told, when ultimately the judgment will happen and the finality of earth will have brought to bear. Now, does that idea make sense? Again, this separation of the righteous and the wicked before the end of time. Well, that seems to contradict directly, doesn't it, what Jesus said in Matthew 13. You might remember the parable of the tares with me, where Jesus spoke there about, remember, a man sowed, this enemy sowed tares amongst a gentleman's wheat, and when the servants came and made note of the fact there's tares amongst the wheat, they even asked, shall we root them up now? And he said, no. He said, you remain them, allow them to remain until harvest. And then you gather them both together. Thus, will there be a separation of the unfaithful and the faithful prior to the end of time? Jesus said there wouldn't be. 
to remember it when he explained that parable in verses 36 to 42. He said the harvest represents the end of time, the end of the world. Thus here is a direct passage contradicted by this rapture idea. Jesus said there will be no separation until the end. And the premillennialism idea says, well, yes, there will be. And it will happen a thousand and seven years before the end of time. Who is correct? Is it the Lord or is it the premillennialists? Well, again, Jesus reigns supreme, doesn't he? But that's not the only thing that you and I might say. You'll notice in our description earlier of the rapture, that second highlighted point brings this to an interesting consideration. Isn't it true that you and I understand from the New Testament that there is to be one resurrection, one event in which resurrection shall take place? However, what does the premillennial idea affirm? Again, the righteous dead will be resurrected at the rapture. What about the wicked dead? Supposedly not till a thousand and seven years later. Now who is right? We have a thousand and seven years separating the two resurrections according to premillennialism, and yet Jesus made this statement. Marvel not that I say unto you, he said in John five twenty eight and 29, Marvel not, he affirmed, for the hour is coming when all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. They that have done good unto the resurrection of life and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. And the Lord said in the same hour, both of those resurrections will occur. He didn't say anything about a thousand and seven years later, did he? We see then multiple resurrections affirmed in the premillennial idea, and yet Jesus said there will be one resurrection event. Later in Acts twenty four fifteen, Paul affirmed the same thing. The resurrection of the just and the unjust. He did not separate them by eons of time. In fairness to that, perhaps we can add another idea. You'll notice this mention of 1,007 years appears yet again in the third idea. We are told from the premillennialism perspective that there is this interval of time between the Lord's second coming and the recognized event of the eternal reward that will be received by the faithful. What does the New Testament teach? Does it teach there will be a length of time, an extensive period of time? You'll notice in the passage before us in 2 Thessalonians 1, verses 7 through 10, Paul put it in words like this, To you who are troubled, rest with us. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, taking vengeance on them that know not God, and obey not the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power. May we ask what exactly Paul affirmed. He said, To you who are troubled, rest with us when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed. He's talking about a coming of Christ. And yet at that coming, what will be the disposition of the unfaithful? He says they'll be forever separated from the Lord Thus, there's not this length of time between the two events or the two realities. They're going to happen at the same, at the, in accordance to the same event. So three times we found contradictions between what premillennialism teaches and what the Bible affirms. Perhaps one final thought. And this one has always, to me, seemed an intensely interesting thing because you'll notice in John chapter 6, 
verses 39, 40, 44, and 54. In every instance, Jesus spoke about the last day. Now, the word last, you and I well means it's the final thing. There certainly cannot be any day after the last day or else that day wasn't the last day. Right? If there's a last day, there are no days that follow it. And yet, as Jesus spoke so firmly about the last day, you'll notice that he carefully affirmed that there will be a raising of the righteous on that event. A raising of the righteous? But premillennialism says, well, the righteous are raised, but there's another thousand and seven years yet until, in fact, the end of time. Question. Who is correct? Was it Jesus in the statements relative to the last day or is the premillennialists that tell us that there's another thousand and seven years after the resurrection of the righteous? To have said all of that, it seems to me, is to answer it. The Bible does not support the concept of the rapture. In fact, every element of it, in terms of its detail, is completely foreign to the Word of God. Will Jesus return? Absolutely. But will it be in a secret rapture event? It will not. And at the bottom, we might thus summarize briefly by saying that, again, the Scriptures not only do not support it, the Scriptures contradict it. And that brings us to some ways we can conclude and summarize our lesson this Lord's Day morning. The teaching of the New Testament relative to the Second Coming is to encourage us to be ready because we do not know the day nor the hour when it will take place. And rather than thinking that the Lord will come in some secret kind of way, and just snatch away those that are his faithful. That is not the way it's going to happen. In fact, the trump of God will sound. The dead in Christ shall rise first. We appreciate from 1 Thessalonians 4.16 that that event will be surrounded in such a way that every eye will see him. It will be a momentous event. It will not be possible to miss it. And thus this morning the question comes to you and to me, rather than believing in some sudden secretive appearance. We should appreciate it will be sudden all right, but far from secretive. And the question is, will we, are you and I ready now? It could be this afternoon when the Lord returns. It might be tonight. It may be 150,000 years from now. None of us know. What we do know is that the Lord has warned us to be prepared and to be ready. So rather than believing in Oral Roberts and his teaching of a rapture or perhaps Hal Lindsey or others, let's believe what the Lord taught and what the inspired New Testament writers wrote. And thus this morning, are you now living in a saved condition? Have you turned your life over to the Master, Jesus himself? Do you walk hand in hand with him each day? Jesus said that you must believe in him. And we read of in Romans chapter 10. He also affirmed that. Following that belief, you need to repent of your sins. Luke 13, verse 3. You also are commanded to confess His name as the Son of God, as we find written in Acts eight thirty-seven, And then to be baptized for the remission of your sins. If that commandment of Acts two thirty-eight is something that you haven't yet submitted to, and yet you know you need to, why do you delay? Our study of the rapture, I hope, will prompt in you a greater sense of urgency relative to your needed preparation for the end of time. If you have become a Christian and have known what that was like and the blessings of it, but have since wandered away from its faithfulness, you've begun to live in a way that isn't right, and others know it. 
Perhaps you've done various things that others can quickly appreciate. You need to uh, let them understand you're making a repentance and a change in life and your desire to come back to your once faithful standing. If we could pray on your behalf today, in the example of Acts 8, we'd be honored to do exactly what they did for Simon on that occasion. If we could be of help to you today, won't you let it be known in what way we could be of assistance while together we stand and while we sing.